Amen. You can be seated. If you have a copy of God's Word in some form, I would love for you to join me this morning in Luke's Gospel of Jesus, uh, beginning in chapter 17 of Luke. If you'll join me in Luke 17 this morning. As we have been walking through Luke's Gospel, Jesus has been very intentionally through his word, creating a contrast with culture. And it was a very clear contrast as he walked through culture. The message that he proclaimed was a message that was completely new, completely counterculture, but was a message of truth that was spoken through a filter of grace and love and mercy. And one thing that happens is that the kingdom he is establishing, he would create this understanding that the kingdom that he is establishing is not a kingdom like we know it, how to define a kingdom by worldly standards. And he said this kingdom is not of this world. And you and I as followers of Jesus live in between times where we are traveling between destinations. So for many of us today, we can often feel as, is, as if this life and this world is home and that our destination, that it's our destination rather than it being a journey towards home. Anytime I travel from home, there is a distinct feeling that comes around the third day or so that I am in a foreign place. And I'm ready to get back home to my city, to my house, to my wife and kids, to my faith community. There's a distinct feeling after a season of time that even though I'm enjoying myself, it's not home. Now, when I'm visiting another city, I recognize fully that my home is not there. And no one, when they prepare to leave a city, walks into the airport and checks their bags and gets waved by the magic wand and maybe frisked, walks through the terminal and and finds one of those comfy seats with a nice charging port nearby, if you can find one, and kicks off their shoes and says, finally I'm home. I can relax. No, the airport isn't home. The airport is the means by which we are journeying back home. And yet for followers of Jesus... We can run the risk of treating this world as home, even though Jesus said it wasn't. And we can become very consumed with the things of this world instead of focusing our attention on the things of the world to come that Jesus instructs us to. And when this begins to take place, we begin to treasure worldly things. We begin to place all of our hope in this life. And we allow the ebb and the flow of life to dictate our joy. We desire for this place, which is, perf- which, which is imperfect, which is broken, we desire it to be perfect. Even though we see through God's word scriptures where he says, I'm sending my sheep among wolves. So we recognize that we are walking in a place and he has intentionally placed his church, and his disciples among unsafe places. And we recognize that, but yet we often desire 
the fenced-in protected pastures. And in our world, where we see a contrasting culture with the kingdom culture, we see an erosion of biblical foundations to the point where there is a compromise of the truth of God's word for the sake of contextualization and acceptance. And we can easily begin to feel defeated or overcome or threatened. We live in a culture where racism is still alive and active. Whereas kingdom citizens, we should be desiring a glimpse of the kingdom here on earth made up of a people of every tribe and tongue and language. And yet many who profess Christ advocate for the preservation of a heritage of this world over the proclamation of a heritage of hope through the gospel that we have seen as sons and daughters of God. We live in a culture where, we have t- where it's slowly taking God's design for marriage, being a symbol to the world, supremely of the gospel and the relationship of Christ to his church and as a gracious gift from his love to be practiced by his design. And we see the culture around us challenging this foundation through the casual exercising and practice of divorce. The frequency of adultery, unfortunately, even among godly leaders, same-sex marriage, heterosexual extramarital sex, lust, pornography. And we find ourselves slowly being lulled to an acceptance of these things outside of God's wills, will and design. And what ends up happening is these things slowly become the norm. We live in a culture where we embrace worldly things more than eternal things. And so we spend our wealth very carelessly while we live in a world that is dying daily from starvation and waterborne uh, diseases and illnesses and homelessness. And yet we slowly are lulled into acceptance by making the standard others around us instead of the standard being Jesus. And it is easy to feel, I could go on and on and on about different instances, and it is easy to feel as if the world is overcoming God, or maybe wrong is overcoming right. And so how do we find encouragement and hope in the middle of this? And I believe we find it by realizing that this should be expected because the world is not our home. And the king is still on his throne. Nothing operates outside of God's sovereignty. Our sovereign God rules over human activity and he is actively advancing his kingdom in anticipation of his return. So we do not despair. As Christians, our reaction should not be panic. We shouldn't lash out in anger and rage. But instead, we choose the way of Christ And we respond with hope and love and truth with the optimism that the king is still on his throne. God has not pushed the panic button. He has not regrouped with a counter battle plan. But instead, as we read in Romans 8, he is working all things, all things for his glory and for our good. The good of those who are called and who love him. 
That as we see when Joseph said in Genesis in regard to his unfortunate situation, which appeared as if he had been sold into slavery and now had risen up in the ranks and his brothers are now standing before him. He says, look, don't worry what was intended for evil. God used for the good. So we do not despair. To do so is to lose sight of the fact that God is still in control and that nothing happens outside of his authority and control. So when our hope is on his glory and his kingdom, we recognize that a culture like the one we walk through in our world should be anticipated. I want to read 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 5. You stay in Luke, you can look on the screen. He says this, understand this, that in the last days there will come, time, there will, there will come times of difficulty. For people are going to be lovers of self and lovers of money. They're going to be proud and arrogant and abusive They're going to be disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And look at this. They're going to, even in the end, are going to have the appearance of godliness. It's going to appear to be godly, but is going to deny the power that God brings. Understand, the days are come, there's going to be times of difficulty. In John 16, Jesus is warning his disciples about the truth that they will encounter much grief in this world. He says, guys, you're going to encounter grief. He tells his disciples that before I come back, it is going to get really bad. He even goes on to say, I didn't warn you about this stuff because I've been walking with you. But there is coming a time when I will not be walking with you. And he says in the beginning of John 16 that the disciples should be prepared because there will be some who will put them out of the synagogue. He says, guys, they're going to put you out of the synagogue and you may actually be killed. And he says, the ones who kill you will actually think that they're doing a service to God. Bad stuff, hopeless situations. And he says, but check this out. He says in John 16, he says, why am I telling you this? He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Because in this world you will have trouble. But take heart because I have overcome the world. He said, I'm telling you, this stuff's going to happen. It's going to be bad, but I'm telling it so you will have peace. You will have peace. And this is where we must land this morning and what we will see in the book of Luke chapter 17. How do we walk in this world with an anticipation of moral and spiritual contradictions and remain at peace? And that is because there is a king and he is ushering in a kingdom. And his kingdom has overcome victoriously the world. The kingdom that is already but the kingdom that is not yet. In the study of God's word in relation to the kingdom of God that is already, but is not yet, there is a term to describe this that is called the kingdom theology. And this morning, Luke is going to introduce those who are listening a description of this kingdom theology. So join with me and let's begin in verse 20 of Luke 17. So Jesus is being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. 
And he said to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray. God, will you please teach us this morning? God, we need discernment and wisdom from you. We don't need man and earthly wisdom. We need godly wisdom, and only you possess that, and only you can gift that to us. So God, may you help us as we walk slowly through this passage to glean from it what you want to share with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The New Testament has a great deal to say about the kingdom of God. As we have walked through the book of Luke to this point, I've shared several times regarding the kingdom. Luke, in fact, he mentions the phrase, the kingdom of God, 30 times. So there is a desire that he has to communicate to his disciples of that time, a yearning, a longing for the kingdom. Now, it's quite easy to recognize and see that the New Testament so frequently speaks of the kingdom and the gospel is about the king of the, of, of the kingdom, right? So it's natural that we will see and glean from the New Testament teachings on the kingdom because the whole gospel, the whole New Testament is about the king of this kingdom. But to begin our understanding of the kingdom of God and the coming of Jesus Christ, we have to, we, 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 to, to begin in the New Testament is to miss the reality that the thread of the kingdom is woven through the biblical narrative from the beginning of creation. The Old Testament screams the good news of the coming king and his kingdom. We first encounter the kingdom of God in the Garden of Eden. The self-sufficient God, out of a desire to glorify himself, pours out onto the blank canvas of nothingness, and he creates. He creates it all. They walked in fellowship with God, and in the purpose for which they were created, and all things that they partook in resonated into glory to God. All things. We see the characteristics of the kingdom of God through the garden, which we'll see repeated throughout a lot of analogies today, of God's people in God's place or presence under God's rule. That is the elements that we'll see of the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. But the kingdom of God, as we know, is fractured from sin. And now things that were created to glorify God were terminating on self-indulgence 
and the brokenness fractured the kingdom. We see a glimpse of the kingdom through God's promise to Abraham that, that God chose Abraham and said, listen, through your faith, it's going to be accounted to you as righteousness. And through your descendants, I'm going to create for me a people and I'm going to lead them and walk with them and lead them to a land flowing with milk and honey that I will give to you. So God's people going to God's place. And he says, you will live under my authority, God's rule. Well, Israel gets out of line as Israel always does and ends up under captivity under Pharaoh. So God's chosen people are now giving a poor reflection of the kingdom because they are still God's people, but yet they're living in a place that was not what God had created for them. And they were under the rule of an earthly ruler, not God's kingdom rule. But he chooses Moses to come in and lead the people out of Egypt to the promised land. Moses is disobedient to God. He never sees the promised land, never goes into the promised land. And the Israelites are led into the promised land by Joshua. We don't get into the promised land, but about 10 chapters. And the people of God, in the presence of God in his place, have now built a cow out of jewelry and they're worshiping it. So we see the kingdom of God in the garden. The kingdom of God through the line of Abraham. The kingdom of God through Moses. And then things just get really messy. Because Israel then begins to want a king. They look around. Everybody has a king. They want a king. And, get, and, and many of them who, who uh, you know, they, they, they wanted a king gets many of them who, who most led Israel to be a train wreck. Like most, of the, most of the kings who led Israel led them to just absolute wreckage. Because you have the people of God in the place of God but they were under the rule of someone other than God. The kingdom was out of balance. So David becomes king and Solomon becomes king after that. And the failure of Solomon's kingdom pointed to a truth that all the prophets who spoke about a kingdom were actually pointing us towards a coming kingdom of God. And so the Old Testament ends on a bright note and a promise of the coming Messiah. That, look, you guys, you, you were thinking kingdom like this, like king, like earthly king. And he said, the kingdom's not like that. He said, there is coming a Messiah. And then silence. For 400 years, nothing. During this time, the Pharisees were literally looking for the return of maybe the kingdom of David or some other leader or ruler who would liberate Israel. And now before we give the Pharisees just a terrible rap, we have to see that this idea was birthed from history. How did they miss the prophecy of liberation of Israel to believe that it was something earthly? Well, around 167 BC, and this is short history, Israel was actually under the rule of another empire called the Seleucid Empire. And in this year, around 167 before Christ, however, an, an Israelite revolutionary would rise up, he would lead a revolt, and he would overturn this empire and once again liberate Israel. So they had seen this thing happen historically. And this would go on for about 25 years until Rome would show up, conquer Israel again, and take back control. And so the Pharisees hear a prophecy of eternal liberation from a Savior, and their minds drift toward another Judas that would rise up, be a warrior who would rise up and liberate them for good. So their hope was, was very, very small. They were looking very small at a kingdom. So they had a very limited perception of the kingdom of God. They looked for salvation and hope in something that was not the grand rescue of Jesus. But isn't that so true of humanity? 
We are all in search of a savior, right? For some of us, it is the government, that our government will deliver us through legislation. For some of us, it is money. Our money is going to liberate us from our problems. For some of us, it's relationships. When will I be liberated from my misery by someone? And the Israelites were looking for deliverance from their temporary worldly condition, and they were totally missing that there is only one who can satisfy and deliver. So they ask, as we read in Luke 17, they ask, when is the kingdom of God coming, Jesus? When is this kingdom rescue coming? And Jesus would respond with a profound statement that gives us such insight into the kingdom of God when he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He says, I am the kingdom of God. Jesus tells them, you are looking for the wrong things. While they were looking for military signs and rebellion to get going or political movement. But Jesus says, this kind of kingdom is not like that. You don't ask, is it over here or over there? You don't say, when are we going to have the signs to see this revolt coming to be? Jesus says, no, it's not like that. He says, the kingdom of God is here. He says, the kingdom of God is already here, guys, because of me. The kingdom that is already. Now, they were looking for a sign, but yet the king had performed many signs. They were looking for a deliverer, and now Jesus is declaring himself as the deliverer. The Pharisees were spending all of their thoughts concentrating on the external implications of the kingdom and less on the spiritual implications of the kingdom that Jesus was establishing. So what is Jesus' declaration of the kingdom that has already begun, the kingdom that we live in right now? What are the indications and the signs that we actually declare? Jesus' kingdom declared his kingdom reign, and it meant that because of his coming, he is redeeming his people through his purchasing and reconciling and adopting. He is fixing the fracture from the fall in the garden to restore fellowship between God and man that was broken by sin, God's presence. So that you and I may live this life following after him, God's rule, and hope for home. Now, this gives us a hope that as we live and function under a kingdom agenda, the way that Jesus would line it out, we live under the reign through his redemption of our hearts and submit our lives, every speck of it, to the reign of the king of this kingdom. We pray that God would build into us a countercultural kingdom ethic, that he would preach on the Sermon on the Mount. We pray, God, that you would instill that in us. We want that to reign in our life, an upside-down kingdom. We want to be a distinction for you in this world because of how we're living under your reign. We radically center our lives on Christ so that through our lives, people can look at it and reflect what it looks like to be the people of God with our hearts, the dwelling place of God, and our lives examples of people who live under the rule of God. Jesus would say, as I read earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2, that you are a chosen race, the people of God. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, the rule of God, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, the place in the presence of God. So there is a kingdom that is already, but we see from this that Jesus talks about his second coming, 
So as we look at a kingdom theology, we also realize that there is a kingdom that began with the beginning of Jesus coming to earth and initiating his kingdom, but there is also a kingdom that is not yet. He speaks about returning like lightning flashing in the sky. He says that there is a kingdom to come. He tells his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. He says, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So Jesus has come and he's established his kingdom, but the truth is that he will return again. And this time when he returns, it'll be to usher in his final establishment kingdom reign forever, where he will judge the earth, and he will, re- he will come and rapture his bride, the church. So Jesus will return again. We can bury our heads. We can refuse to think about the reality of this. We can pretend we have all of the time in the world. But the truth is, Jesus said he will return sooner than later, like a flash in the sky. The disciples, as we will see towards the end of Luke, will see the full evidence of the resurrection. They will see Jesus ascend into heaven, and we now await his return today. But Jesus would warn them. Jesus would warn his disciples, a warning that resonates to us today, that we don't find ourselves being misled by mistruths about the Messiah, but we wait on his glorious Return. Look what he says. He says, uh, they will say to you, look there or look here. But he says, do not go out or follow them. He writes, listen to this text. He says, see to it that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. Listen, they will deliver you over to councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel, though, must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and they deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever's given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." Man, Jesus is saying here, why are you surprised when you are faced with opposition? He said, I told you you're going to be hated for my name before the end comes, but hang on. I have given you the end of the book. I am victorious. Hang on. So Jesus says it's going to get bad. The world is going to get off track. But he says, trust me. Trust me. He says that just like the lightning flashes and lights up the sky, so will my return be. Here another scripture, what the kingdom's of like. It is such a rescue from this life. We see in Revelation, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for these former things will have passed away. And he said, the one that is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Have hope. This liberates us from hopelessness in this world. This liberates us from focusing on just the temporary issues of this world. We no longer panic. We don't have to lose hope when things get off the rails because we know that God is victorious. He said this was going to happen and his victory is guaranteed. So that is the good news. He is coming again, but he warns them. That before he comes, we need to watch for certain things. Look back in, as you look in our text in Luke 17, he warns them of a few things that'll happen. One, rejection. He says that just like the Old Testament prophesied, I'm going to be rejected. It has to happen. He wanted his disciples to know that I'm the kingdom, but, but wait for the not yet. It's coming. I will be rejected first. He talks about in this indifference, how he warned them about how in, in Sodom and Gomorrah and how before Noah and the flood... People were just going about life, eating and drinking and marrying and building uh, buildings. And Jesus warns about indifference against the illustration of no one lot. He says that just like during the flood and the destruction of Sodom, people were just doing their thing. And Jesus said, be on guard, be prepared, be anticipating, be ready. Don't be indifferent. Don't live life carelessly. Don't waste the time between the kingdoms. He says, don't be indifferent, be ready. He warns at the, at the end about being possessed by possessions. He uses the, the illustration of Lot's wife. Jesus says that whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will keep it. He says, guys, the life that I'm talking about is not the loss of life temporarily here. He says, whoever seeks to save his life is actually going to lose it. But the one who loses his life is actually going to be the one who saves it. Jim Elliott, a missionary who was martyred for his faith, said it very similarly one time when he said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to keep what he cannot lose. The kingdom of God is guaranteed for his people. So Jesus said that his return would be sudden and we must be ready. So what encouragement do we gain from this kingdom concept. Because the last thing I want to advocate for is God's coming and he's going to fix it all. So we're going to bury head in the sand. And we're going to live life very sheltered and protected. And we're going to build a big wall around us so that we can sit and wait and anticipate his return. And to do that would miss the purpose for us being citizens of the already but not yet kingdom. God has a purpose for us as we walk between times, recognizing that Jesus is king and recognizing that the king will return and all of these things that seem to have reign over good, he's going to eliminate those things because his establishment of his kingdom reign will be forever. But he says that while you are here, I have a purpose for you. I have chosen you to be the ones that are going to usher in my kingdom. 
You're going to be my image bearers and my presence. My presence is going to dwell in you. And where you go, you're going to carry as the church the picture of the kingdom to come. So how are we to live as citizens of the already but not yet kingdom? We aren't just hiding out into that day, but we've been given a job. And I I see several things that I think are scattered across God's word, but I think very specifically come to mind in Luke 17. And that is that as we walk in between times, as followers of Jesus, we are to be compassionate and confident. We are to be compassionate and confident. We learned from this passage of scripture this morning that Jesus wants us to see that the kingdom that he is establishing is not dictated by what appears to be in control in the temporary world. The Pharisees were looking for a sign and Jesus says, listen, the kingdom is not like that. I am king and the kingdom is here. So how do we communicate this in our world? We are to be compassionate for those that do not know the good news of the kingdom. We are to be loving and compassionate, to have a heart to see that when, you, when, when the, a world is not living a life in submission to this king and kingdom, we shouldn't expect kingdom values from them. They are not ruled by the king and his kingdom. And so we are to be the ones to come and to show and demonstrate this is what it looks like to live life the way our creator designed it. To live underneath the rule of the king with his presence among us. That's, this is what this looks like. We're to be compassionate and have a heart to demonstrate that. Children of God, the people that have been redeemed by Jesus are called to live under the rule of the king. But those that are not his children, we shouldn't be surprised when they live under a different agenda. But we should be burdened and compassionate to teach them God's design for living So we go to them and we show them the way in which our creator made us to live life according to his plan. And we are compassionate that they do not know him. We love our lost brothers and sisters like Jesus did. Recognizing that though they may be living in a place of sin, they are created in the image of God. They are his image bearers. That though sin may be currently reigning in, our, in their life, they are the imago Dei and their design is that they will live under the kingship of Jesus. But we are also confident. Church, the king is victorious. The kingdom will reign. This is not a question and, and, uh, that we have to ponder and we do not have to fear any threat because no threat to the kingdom will be able to prevail. And you can be confident as the church that the king promises victory for himself. It will not come fully on this earth. But remember, we don't gauge the king's victory by earthly standards. Because this is eternal in nature. Jesus says that he is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Be compassionate. Be people of grace and mercy. But be confident people. Be confident in God's word and his truth. We aren't trying to defend or convince that what we believe is truth. We are just proclaiming it. So we don't feel threatened when God's truth comes under attack because it is absolute truth and it will endure forever. So we hold it up high and we do not despair. We proclaim the truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 5 verse 4 
Paul would write this. He said, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I will give you this charge. Now listen very closely and, and hear this in the, in the times that we walk in. He said, Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience, careful instruction. Because why? The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. He says, why are you surprised? I'm telling you, there's going to come a time when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires... They will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. He says, listen, there's going to come a time where truth is going to, people are going to begin to stop listening to truth. And they're going to surround themselves with people that teach the truth they want to hear. He says, you preach the gospel. You preach the gospel. Charles Spurgeon said in two different sermons about the gospel, he said, it's like a caged lion. He said, the gospel does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of the cage. So we stand firm on the truth of God's word with confidence. We, We preach it with compassion and love And grace and mercy like Jesus, but we preach it with confidence because God's word is absolute and supreme. We see a second thing, I think, and that is that we are to be purposeful and prepared. So we're to be compassionate and confident. We're to be purposeful and prepared. Jesus said to his disciples that the kingdom that is not yet is coming and we must be ready. So how are we to be ready? By being prepared for the kingdom that is not yet, but purposeful in between the times. We have a purpose for being here, and that is to be the messengers of the king. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 says this, We are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, recognizing that that there is a coming day, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. So that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore... We regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. 
All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And look what he did. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So what is his appeal? We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Don't be, re- not, not, we're not proclaiming supremely a message of be reconciled to what we believe and act like. That will come. He says, my appeal to you is to be reconciled to God, to the king, to be reconciled to him. He says, for, but why? Because in verse 21, for our sake, why do we say be reconciled to God and submit your life to his truth and his reign and his word and his teachings and his commands? Why? Because for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He says, why do we appeal to you to submit to the king? Because he made his son who knew no sin. He made him sin. He murdered his son so that you may have life. That is what motivates us to to plead with the world. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to the one who loves you, to the one who knew no sin yet took fully our sin, all of our sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So you and I, we are prepared. We have our hearts eager and ready for his return. But then there's a third thing I think we see and it's final. And that is that we are to be radical and revolutionary. We are to be radical and revolutionary. What do I mean by this? First, we are to live our lives with our focus on the kingdom to come. This will look radical. We are willing to lay down our lives for the sake of the kingdom. We are willing to lose our life, our passions, our desires, our dreams, and maybe literally our life and submit them to the king. It's radical. Following after Jesus is gonna look radical. In fact, any followership of Christ, we're called to live radically. So that means in the face of a changing culture, that means in a place that is focused on the kingdom of the world, we're gonna walk radically in life. We're gonna do things that do not make sense. We're going to live our life under a different kingdom agenda, under different rules and under a different reign. We're going to walk differently. It's going to be a radical life. And the basis of it all is the radical characteristic of the love of God. Why are we able to walk radically? Because we have experienced a radical love like none other. So we walk in this world impacted by the love of God. But yet we are revolutionary. What does that mean? That seems like a pretty tough term. What do we mean by that? A revolution the way that Christ brought it. He didn't bring a military revolution. God came and he defeated sin through his son Jesus. So how do we live revolutionary? We live counter 
cultural lives as people who bring a truth, though it may oppose culture. But we do it in the manner of the king who constantly preached a countercultural message but did so in a way that called people to see his glory. So we do this with the love of Christ. Scriptures say, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. The whole body's joined together by that. Love is our marking. But not love as the world would define love. This is the deepest kind of love. This is a love of the father who was willing to have his own son give his life so that we could have life. That's revolutionary. The kind of love that God demonstrated to us that is so unconditional, that is so not earned by us, that is revolutionary kind of love. And that's what the world needs to hear. That there is a Savior who, is, who sees your sin, but through his son's blood, he sees that as the covering for any sin that you may experience. So love, not as the world would define, the deepest kind of love. So our aim is not to condemn. Because the truth is, brothers and sisters, we were all condemned. Our sin, no matter what it is, condemned us. But the good news is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as we live on this side of heaven, we live a life longing for the kingdom of God, but we teach a radical and revolutionary message that how can we call you out of certain life patterns? How do you, how, what makes it possible for you to be called out of that to follow this king? It's because he is the ruler. He created all things. He designed life the way it should be lived best for his glory. And he says, I'm coming again. I'm going to return and I'm going to gather my children, those who have the blood of Jesus as their covering. I'm gathering them together and I'm going to reign and restore, restore the, 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 the way things were originally designed and created to be, where we were in perfect fellowship, where everything resonates to my glory. So that's what we call people to. It's an abandonment of life. It's a, it's a denial of self so that we may follow Jesus. So we walk in a world and they, there are many that have a grasp on things that they do not want to let go of. And Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, if anybody's going to come after me, he must deny himself. That means anything that we desire outside of his will and outside of his teachings, though it may be something that pulls at us, if any man were to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and let him follow after me. Jesus says that the person that abandons their life and the things that our sin's nature pulls us towards, anyone that abandons their life for my sake, he says, whoever seeks to preserve that his life is going to lose it. Whoever seeks to preserve life and live it outside of the kingdom reign and agenda of Christ, 
outside of the blood of Jesus. Whoever seeks to preserve his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever loses his life will keep it. I pray as God's church that as we walk in between times, that we will walk boldly as the messengers of the king. That as an ambassador of the king, that we do not go in the name of Christ with any of our agendas personally. But what does an ambassador do? An ambassador of a country goes and delivers the wishes of the country they represent. As ambassadors of King Jesus, we don't go and, 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 and project anything other than what the king desires. And so may you and I walk very carefully, recognizing, as I shared earlier, that as we walk in this world, we are like sheep among wolves, but may we walk very carefully, very carefully. Scriptures would talk about it. We walk with wisdom like a serpent, peace like a lamb. We walk very peacefully, but yet very wise, recognizing where we're at, and hope for the return of Christ. As the writer of Revelation would write the final line, of God's inspired word, and he would say, come, Lord Jesus. May that be what, we, what, what propels our heart. May our tightness, tight grip on this world be so loose that, God, we wake up every day and we say, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. We want you to come in the suffering and pain. Come, Lord Jesus. Reveal your glory to us that we may live with you forever in perfect peace and harmony. That the, that the shalom that you created in the garden, may you restore that. We pray even so, come, Lord Jesus. And that is our prayer as his children. So may we walk as kingdom citizens, as God's people, in God's presence, under God's reign. Let's pray together.